appreciate your prayers this week. It has definitely been a uh, challenging week for me. Uh, I I uh, was able to preach the funeral for my grandmother on, on Friday. And by God's grace, I got to honor a gracious woman. At the same time, I've got to honor the great grace giver, Jesus Christ. It's very encouraged. The Lord granted me much grace this week in preparation. There's a Proverbs, Proverbs, Proverbs 11.16 says, a, a gracious woman receives honor or attains honor. It was a great springboard for me where I got to talk about the grace that my grandmother definitely displayed in her life, uh, but it was also a beautiful segue into the grace-giving God that we should honor with our lives. And so God used that, I believe, and you can pray for fruit there. Uh, some of my family may be watching even right now. So thank you for your prayers this week, church. We're going to take a break from Acts for the next seven weeks, actually. I will come back to it after I finish this series. I'm going to take the next seven weeks to preach a series on the church. We planted this church, Grace Bible Church, eight and a half years ago. It was pretty much the Samics and I, the Sprots and the Samics planted the church. It's time for us to do a little bit of a self-evaluation or a checkup from the neck up. I preached through the seven churches of Revelation about five years ago, and I thought at the time it would be really good to preach back through these churches periodically as an encouragement and a reminder to our church. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gave seven short mini-sermons. To the seven churches of Asia Minor at that time. These are not church ages as some um, overly ambitious dispensationalists might try to take it. I think they were literal churches, seven literal churches that Jesus spoke to. These sermons are excellent reminders of what we should be prioritizing in our church and in our own personal walks with the Lord. These are short, concise messages to the churches around 95 A.D., about 60 years after the start of the church at Pentecost. These are excellent little short letters that help to give us an overview of church life. I find it interesting that as you read through Revelation 2 and 3, you don't see any mention of programs. You see none of that. You just see what Christ wants his church to be like. These seven mini-sermons are part of the bigger book of Revelation. The book was circulated about uh, among the churches around, like I said, 95 A.D. During the ruthless reign of Domitian, Domitian or excuse me, Domitia, the Roman emperor, Revelation is not only the last book in your Bible, it was the last book of the New Testament that was written. It was the final special revelation given to God's church. Revelation served as a great encouragement to the churches that the Lord Jesus is sovereign over all events, past, present, and future. I find it so ironic that out of all the books in, in arguably the Bible where the sovereignty of God is most displayed is in Revelation, and yet it is the book that most Reformed people avoid at all costs. The evil emperor started the second round of persecution on the church during his 15-year reign of the Roman Empire. So the Lord saw the church in need of encouragement in light of the trials that they were suffering under. Jesus gave John this revelation of the present and future events to encourage the suffering believers to persevere for his name's sake. He used it to call the church to trust him. Through persecution. The background of the book is pretty simple. The purpose of the book is laid out pretty clearly. This book 
Many avoid because they don't want to deal with the difficulties of eschatology or the study of end times. But it is a book with a great promise. It says in Revelation 1-3, notice in your Bibles, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This book was written by the Apostle John while he was on the Isle of Patmos. John had been banished there because of that persecution from the emperor. However, the Lord gave John this revelation while he was secluded on the island. It became a huge encouragement to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Revelation is a very misunderstood book. However, it is also a book that is worth studying. We must not fall, and listen to me closely, into the trap of avoiding books of the Bible because they appear to contradict other pet doctrines that we have. Martin Luther fell into this same trap when he dismissed the book of James because he could not harmonize it with his doctrine of justification by faith alone. You realize that Martin Luther said that James wasn't a part of the canon. All because he couldn't justify and reconcile those two things. But there's some great promises in this book. Matter of fact, you see one. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. Favored by God are those who read and hear and embrace and heed the message. God's favor for those who read and hear. Plus, there's the promise of the imminent return of Christ. The time is near. This is very important. This is a very important part of the believer's thinking. God wants us to be prepared as if Jesus could return at any moment. Everything that needs to happen has happened. Jesus is just waiting for the Father to command him to go get his children and to begin to pour out the wrath of the Lamb that you read in chapters 6 through 19. The letter is written to encourage the churches to be ready. We too need to be ready as a church for his return could come at any moment. Now notice the outline. Like John's other book, his, uh, his other books, his logic is fairly simple to follow, contrary to those that may want to make this a complex series of overlapping symbolic stories that we really can't figure out what they mean. There is a logical flow to the book, and the book's outline is stated very simply in the first chapter. It says, and Jesus is speaking to John, Therefore write the things which you have seen, that would be everything up to verse 18. And the things which are, which would be chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after these things. That would be chapters 4 to the end of the book. Not a real hard, complex outline, right? He even gives it to us. It's a great book. We're not going to teach the whole book, but we're going to focus in on that middle section. The things which are. The things which are. And again, the reason we focus on the middle section is, is it gives us an excellent overview of the church and the life of the church. These are like little epistles within the larger book. In Revelation, the symbols and word pictures given by John stump many. But as is the case in much of the book, many of the symbols are defined in the book. One example of that symbol is the lampstand. He mentions it in our passage. This is a symbol of, or word picture, for each of the seven churches. If you picture in your mind a lampstand, what do you have? You have somewhat like a candlestick, right? Well, that's what churches are. We are reflecting and showing off the glory of God to the world, showing off Christ. And he tells us that that's what it is. It's seen clearly in the audience. Notice in Revelation 1.11, it states, Jesus says, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These were the seven real churches that were located in what is today modern-day Turkey. Some of the cities still have Christian churches in those towns today. You notice over in 120 it says, As for, and see he defines what it is, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, 
and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels. I'll talk about that in a second. Of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he kind of tells us what the symbols are often. Some of the symbols are found in the Old Testament. And the more you know your Old Testament, the easier it will be for you to understand Revelation. Because most of them are already told. And the person that knows their Old Testament will understand Revelation a lot better. I want you to notice, a, look at a, the audience just a little bit. There's modern-day Turkey, and you all know this is the hotbed right there between Syria and Iraq right now. Well, over on the left side of Turkey there are the seven churches. And you see them. It's, they were right on a, uh, a mail route, and he gives you the mail route. He's over on Patmos. You see over there on the left side, and... Right there, he would have gotten the letter over to Ephesus, which was a port city. There's the first little city. And then that would go to the next mail route, which would be Smyrna, up to Pergamum, back down to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it would have just followed the mail route. And he gave it to you in that order. Very interesting how it's very logical, not hard, very simple to understand. Yet again, we see here a beautiful picture of Seven little mini letters in a bigger book meant to encourage the believers to stand firm. Jesus' first message was a call to, in, in, in his message to the church in Ephesus, was a call to pursue theological purity and personal holiness without abandoning our first love, Jesus Christ. Beloved, ultimately what we do with Jesus is our primary responsibility. That would be the whole point of his first message. What we do with him is what's important. Now you can have all these great truths, we will see, and you can be the greatest theological church, but not apply it to your heart and not love Jesus, and then guess what? It means absolutely nothing. Matter of fact, Jesus warns them that he will come and take their lampstand from them, which means that you will stop being the light to the world that you're supposed to be if you don't get this right. So we will see that ultimately what we do with Jesus is our primary responsibility. We'll look at the five parts of this mini-epistle given by Jesus. We will see the only way to truly pursue holiness is through our pursuit of Christ. Mark that down. The only way to pursue holiness is through our pursuit of Christ. It's not through just cleaning up the outside of the cup or being a religious person. You must pursue Jesus with all that you are. You must be satisfied with Christ completely. And then your holiness will match your heart. Because the heart will produce the holiness. Notice he first starts with the introduction in verse 1. Notice the address. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. To the angel here. The Greek word for angel can also be translated messenger. I lean that it should be messenger because angels would obviously not receive rebukes and calls for repentance as some of the letters include. Many of the commands were directed with a single imperative to the messenger or the angel to repent. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm completely convinced the scriptures say that angels never sin. So I believe that this messenger he's talking to, he's talking to the seven stars, which would be probably the leaders of the church. He was most likely talking about the pastors of the churches who were first on the mind of Jesus here. This is part of the high calling of a pastor. We are responsible for our sheep. This is a scary thought, isn't it, Mr. Ryan? What we teach is often what the church embraces. What we allow is what the church allows. This is why it is crucially important for you to pray for your pastor. Please pray for our elders or for our pastors. What we embrace and teach, you will probably embrace and teach. If not, you'll leave, right? Also, for you men who are considering full-time pastoral ministry, many of you have mentioned that you want to do this. You need to take this responsibility seriously. This is one reason we start, we're starting the Institute. 
We want to make sure that we train men to become elders of the future, love God and His Word, and both teach and live the truth. And I know uh, some of you ladies have mentioned to me you want to be in the Institute too, and I love you, and, and we are going to, by God's grace, eventually get you in there. But we are starting with the men, and there's a reason for this. We want our men to be trained to be pastors in this church, to lead this church in the future. That's where we're starting. We want the men to step up in this church. If you haven't noticed in evangelical Christianity, and really Christianity around the world, it is a major problem. Men skate their duty and responsibility to step up and lead. And it is time for that to change. We need to be in the men that know the word of God and stand for the truth of the word of God. That's what we're about here by God's grace. In Ephesus, that's where it was written to, the church in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was highly populated and especially and an especially corrupt city. It was the largest city in the area of Asia for the Roman Empire. It was a port city and it had a major highway running through it. There were numerous visitors and traders who frequented the city. It was a free city in that Rome had granted it self-governance. And there were no soldiers from the Roman army even stationed in Ephesus. The city grew, drew big crowds for athletic events. And there was also a huge draw to the temple Artemis, or Artemis rather. People who had committed crimes, listen to this, this will tell you how bad the city was. People who had committed crimes could find a, uh, asylum at the temple area. It was a giant temple area, a very big one. So massive amounts of criminals that lived around that area. They'd go to that area so they had a safe place. So you think about it, that would be the way. If you got caught for a crime, where did you go? Ephesus. Wow, what a city to live in, right? The city was the center of pagan worship of the goddess Artemis, also known as by the Roman goddess Diana. This is a, a, a model of what it would have looked like. Do you understand that this temple was actually larger than the Acropolis that you see in those pictures in Athens? It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a giant, giant place. Huge. And they had their goddess that they worshipped. This was a huge temple, as mentioned. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And so you can imagine what she would be associated with a lot. There was a giant idol of the woman that was in the temple just like this. And there were prostitutes that hung out at the temple. And those prostitutes were, in fact, highly esteemed and considered priestesses of Artemis. So, in other words, everybody that wanted to know God and have a relationship with God, they went and visited their local prostitute at this temple. You say, why am I giving you all these details? Well, because there's a very important point here. This was arguably the finest church the first 40 years of the start of the church was in this city. This is arguably the best church, and it was started in the most pagan of places. As wicked as it was, God established a thriving church in this city. God is not limited to where he shows off his glory. Praise the Lamb, right? He picks really wicked places to show off his glory. That's what he's all about. He's able to establish thriving churches in the most wretched of areas. The church was actually a very prominent church in the early days. It was established by the Apostle Paul, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, as Acts 18 will talk about. Paul spent more time during his missionary trip in Ephesus than any other church. You understand what that means? They had the Apostle Paul teaching him for years. That's great. Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, obviously. Paul, farewell addressed to the Ephesian elders, points to a close relationship with these men and thus the church in Acts 20, right? You remember the, Ephesians el or the uh, Ephesian elders? And then Paul had left Timothy in charge of the church, and that's why he writes, and when he writes First and Second Timothy, Timothy's there. 
He's in Ephesus at this church. Then it appears that the apostle John takes up after Timothy's done and ministered in Ephesus for numerous years from 66 A.D. until his exile at Patmos around 95. So you're talking 30 years with the apostle John. Now think about this church for a second. You got the Apostle Paul, you have Timothy, and you have the Apostle John teaching you for 40 years? Wow, what a church, right? As many as eight New Testament books were written to the church. Ephesians, the Gospel of John, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st through 3rd John, and Revelation. On top of this, likely Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus while he was serving there. All total, this is two apostles, three direct disciples of the apostles. Numerous books of New Testament influenced them over the years. Forty years of great teaching. And what do we get in Revelation 2, 1 to 7? We get some affirmations, but we also get a huge rebuke. A scary rebuke. I don't know about you guys. It's a petrifying thing to read these first seven verses. You got the greatest of the great teachers. I mean, no offense to John MacArthur, 11, but I'll take the Apostle Paul over John MacArthur any day. Won't you? And as much as I love John Piper, I'll take the Apostle John over him. And yet, we have a church that Jesus rebukes in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Wow. This should scare us, huh? This should cause all of us to an extent say, Hey, look at me, Lord. What's going on in me? Look at our church. What do we need? You know, it's, it, I think it's good for all of us to take time to evaluate, isn't it? very encouraged by a sister in our church this week posted something very vulnerable, open and honest. Very encouraged by that. Because what it shows is, is that that sister was willing to just say, hey, I need Jesus. It's only about him. It's not about me. We have a tendency to look around at each other and go, oh, that person's really holy. See how holy that person is? They act real good. No, we're all vulnerable, aren't we? If a church taught by those great men for 40 years gets a rebuke, then we all need him, don't we? Notice the author says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Well, the seven stars are the angels, which are the messengers, which implies he's in control of those that speak. He's in control of the pastor. The messenger, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Obviously, what's that point to? The idea that he is in sovereign control of those churches. He's working and he's intimately involved and sovereignly in control of all that they do. Jesus is the one who is speaking. Jesus described him here with those two descriptions and he borrowed them from chapter 1. In chapter 1, where he already revealed himself, but he kind of develops them a little bit. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he talked about the word translated held is changed to holding firm in chapter 2. So in other words, he held them and now he's holding firm, these messengers. And then also the phrase in the middle of the lampstands in verse 13 of chapter 1 is changed to include walking among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the emphasis expands on Christ's active participation within the churches. This emphasis Jesus of Jesus' active control, even more than the previous mention of his position in the midst. So both of these descriptions highlight Christ's sovereign lordship over the representatives and their respective churches. He is beloved the living and active Lord. He is working in his church. So the church needs to heed his words. You know, there's some application here for us. Beloved, things have not changed. 
Jesus is just as active in his churches today as he was then. He is actively participating in the growth and maturation of his church. He is also very aware of our sin in the midst. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to pursue him and become holy. It is also important to note the foundation of all change is a proper view of Jesus. I hope you get this. This is so important. You're going to hear this every week for the next seven weeks. Listen closely. He starts with, this is who I am. And then he says, this is what you should do. A proper understanding of who Jesus is is what drives us to do what we're supposed to do. The more we understand who Christ is, the more we understand his role in all these things, the more we are then prepared to do what? Obey him and love him and serve him. Crucial for effective change is a growing understanding of the Lord. That's how you will change. If you change without that uh, uh, good view or understanding of Christ, guess what it is? It's self-promotion. Without a reliance upon and enjoyment of Christ, your change will be what? Useless. Fruitless. You must understand that He is the one that's in sovereign control. He is the one that's working. He is in our midst. And therefore, we will be ready to change with right motives. Notice he starts with an affirmation in verses 2 and 3. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Oh, it's so important to note the order here. Yes, the church had issues, but as Ryan mentioned last week, our compassionate Savior still finds a way to give that encouragement. He starts with encouragement here before the rebuke. He encourages them first on what they're doing right. I find it interesting that most likely what they were doing wrong was an attack on him, yet he will still start with an affirmation. What a gracious Lord, right? By the way, how well do we do with that? Uh, Just again to apply that. When you see somebody doing something wrong, we are quick to be able to point out what they're doing wrong. But how well are we at giving them some encouragement before we start? Oh, parents, take that to heart. Sometimes we are immediately boom, 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 boom. You're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. But here we see the Lord's example is a beautiful one, isn't it? He starts with the encouragement first. This is so important. Look, it starts with a little summary statement. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. The church was characterized by works, deeds. And the church toiled with difficulty in their circumstances. And the church was characterized by perseverance. They were determined. They were resolved. They were tenacious for the truth, as we will see. And that's good, isn't it? That's a great thing. Should we be tenacious and resolved for the truth? Absolutely. There's many of us in this room. I'm I'm very encouraged by you because you do love the truth. Many of you are excellent at doing what Ephesus is all about here. You are able to point out. And man, you know how many times I get and learn about the false teachings of our day from you guys. And, and it's not because you're like, come and say, oh, this is great stuff. Have you checked it out? You come to me saying, do you see this heresy? This is horrible. <laughs> Y'all are really good at this. And I praise the Lord for that. <laughs> I pray that we're not losing our first love, though, which we will see in a little bit. These guys were truth warriors. I want to be like that, don't you? I want our church to be about that. Notice it says... And you put to test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. But beloved, we can do that. 
And I see that in our church. I see that in us. We put to test those who call themselves apostles or preachers, and we say, you're a false teacher. <laughs> Most of you in here would not be afraid to stand up and say, heretic. <laughs> I know. Y'all do this. You understand. Out of all the seven churches, I think that I'm afraid might apply to us the most. It might be this one. I just pray that it, the second half of this is not applicable to all of us. The church in Ephesus was all about truth. They were all about theological precision. Paul had warned them of false teachers as recorded in Acts 20, and they took it to heart. And John had pro- and warned them over the years in 1 John, we see, test, check, examine. What did they do? They did it. They took it. They listened to the message. And they put, toiled in their pursuit of truth. We see in verse 6, they rejected the heresy of the Nicolaitans. This was a heresy that is kind of going around today. That said, you live whatever way you want because justification allowed for fleshly pursuits while here on earth. Sound familiar? A form of antinomianism. No law. But the church rejected that heresy. And as Jesus states, I hate it too. It's wrong. Notice Jesus continues to explain the strengths. In verse 3 he says, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Their perseverance, this word means to abide under a heavy burden. These are probably associated with being a Christian in Ephesus, a place of evil. The term means endurance despite tough circumstances. As mentioned, the church was in a horribly pagan city with many evil practices. The church was known for their endurance in these difficult times and circumstances. They were literally having endurance. You are continually persevering. It was an ongoing characteristic. Obviously, the battle to stay faithful in that wicked city was an ongoing battle, right? And that is an ongoing battle we suffer with, right? We endure with, right? The city we live in and the country we live in and the society we live in today, does it cause us to battle? Oh, yeah, it does. The battle is to stay faithful in the wicked city. And they were doing it. As we will see, the battle to continue on, but as the battle wore on, it appears they got their eyes off their leader. And that is so very crucial. It's almost like you become a good fighter and you begin to take trust and confidence in yourself. And you actually begin to be, for lack of a better term, holy whitewashed tombs. You are good at pointing out evil in the society, but your heart doesn't appear to really be in love with the one who is redeeming you and saving you and sanctifying you. They were a church that endured very difficult circumstances. Literally, it says... They had endured for Christ's namesake. Wait a second. How can it be that they didn't love him if they were doing it for his namesake? Oh, beloved, how many people have done things in the name of Christ over the centuries that we wish they wouldn't have? Point in fact, what? The Crusades. Oh, don't we wish that would have gone away? Doing something for his namesake does not necessarily mean they did it with right hearts, or at least by the end of the 40 years. They maintained at least a level of faithfulness to the name they wore, but it appears that they were doing it from their own strength, depending on themselves, and not enjoying their Savior. And notice it says, and they have not grown weary. This is very interesting. It's kind of a play on words because it says they toiled. Well, the word toiled means that they, were, uh, they worked to the point of exhaustion. 
And yet they did not grow weary. They did not become exhausted. They toiled, but they did not become exhausted. What we have here is, a, is an interesting uh, thought here. That they literally were working themselves to death. But yet they didn't consider it to death. They were okay with it. Now, again, I don't believe, he would not reference, he would not affirm, he would not say this is good if there wasn't some level of faith behind it in God and in Christ. He wouldn't have affirmed it. If it was all only from bad hearts, he wouldn't have affirmed it here. Do you understand? So there had to be some mixed motives. Do you all have that problem with mixed motives? I do. It, it, but there is this sense, and, and this I, might not be pretty, and it might not fit into this box that we want everything to be like in a beautiful box. But it appears that our sanctification, sometimes we can be going in the right direction, but still not 100% looking to God. It's as if we can be doing a bunch of religious things, but our heart not really be all in it. You understand what I mean by that? Well, that? That's kind of, that's hard to get your hands around, isn't it? So when we go to the counseling table and we start talking, well, we, well, what part is God and what part is you? Yes. I don't know where the line is. But it appears here they were doing great works, good deeds, toiling. But... Their love of the Savior appears to have been lacking. I don't want to be this. Do you? I want my motivation to be my love for Christ. And I have to admit to you, when I, when I go through these messages like this, it's in God's providence, sometimes it's as if he's just slapping me right across the face. I have been busy. A lot lately. But I find myself not always just enjoying my Savior. Y'all pray for your pastor. I can relate with this church. I want to enjoy Christ more. I want to do it because of my love of the gospel, not because I've got a duty and a responsibility to do tomorrow. I think that's what happens with great churches too, by the way. Do you understand? Because great churches, you get all of this doctrine. Everybody's, yeah, let's do this. And let's do this too. And let's do that too. Let's add another Bible study over here. And let's do one here. Let's do 20 Bible studies a week. Come on, bring it to me. I can do it. Because I'm going to toil and persevere. our eyes get off of the Savior. If your pastor is vulnerable to this, then you are too. And again, I think, and I want to let you know, unfortunately, y'all are going to follow a lot of what I do. I want to love Christ more. I want to enjoy Him more. I don't want this rebuke. How about you? These were warriors for doctrinal truth. <laughs> if we stopped here, we'd be tempted to think, now this is the kind of church we want to be a part, but as it says, Jesus moves on. Again, I think we see here a case of precision without enjoyment, a church of doers that become more like a machine. They had all the answers. They read all the books. They knew every angle. They had all the great teachers. They had read the institutes of their day. They had catechized all their children of the day. They could, say, they could slay any false teacher in a single bound. They were theological warriors. Truth warriors. But there was something missing. While good works are evident, the works themselves are not enough to avoid Christ's rebuke. Look at his confrontation. 
the amount of space that he uses in this small little epistle on just one little line, and yet that one little line is like the death blow, isn't it? How many of you want this said to you by Jesus? But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Oh, I don't want that. The tone of the letter, of the message, changes drastically here. It starts with but here, and this is the strongest contrast as possible. Emphatically, but I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Even though there is only one problem mentioned, it's not a small problem. The importance of the problem is best seen in Jesus' call for repentance in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You think Jesus took it serious that they had left their first love? Absolutely. I don't know about you, for those that are working for Christ, the one thing, what would be the one thing we want to do? If there was one thing, we talked about it this week in our our family. What is the one thing when we pulled up at the funeral, we told our children, make sure you're representing Christ. You want to show off Christ to the world, children. Let's do it. Let's show them Christ. That's what we all want, right? And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will stop doing that. I will take that away from you and you will not represent me. You will not be a lampstand. I bet that got their attention. I know it got their attention. Does it get your attention? So what was the problem? What is the first love? Love for one another? Or is it a love for Christ? I believe Jesus is speaking of their love for him. He would have been their first love, right? I mean, isn't that what the Bible says? And to not love him obviously would be grounds for losing their light-giving role in the world. It appears that this description of the overall church, again, is a description of the overall church. I believe this was a general direction of the church. They, as a whole, had turned from pursuing and enjoying Jesus, and they were all about doctrine without true sacrificial commitment to Jesus himself. It was more about a religion than a relationship with Christ. And I think that you can use those terms. Some people say, and and, and even in my circles, that would say, no, it's not about a relationship with Jesus, just go with the objective truth. Well, I think that's exactly what they were doing. I think it is a relationship. I think it is a loving relationship with Christ. Enjoying Him. Delighting in Him. Being satisfied with Him. Knowing that He is the one thing, as Psalm 27 talked about, that we want. His Him. Jesus states, they left their first love. You have stopped loving me as you did at first. You have abandoned your lo- the love you had at first, as ESV states. You have forsaken your first love, as NIV states. You have departed from your first love. All of those are good. They just developed the concept. The church of Ephesus was known for its love previously. This is revealed in the the letter to the Ephesians. In the the letter to Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, it states this. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love. It appears they had an incorruptible love for Christ. And he was pronouncing a blessing on them. In Ephesians 1.15 it says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Their love for Christ had caused them to love others. I found it interesting that Paul had told the church, listen closely in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love and 40 years later they were speaking the truth 
and it didn't, doesn't appear that it was doing, being done in love. They weren't enjoying and loving Christ. So how would they have done that? Jesus is addressing that problem then and telling them, and it appears they didn't read their own letter. Or at least they weren't applying their own letter. How much is that us? How many of you have the Bible? Yeah. How many of you read the Bible every week? Yeah. I know you guys are a bunch of theologians. I praise the Lamb for that. But what about application? How are we doing applying it? There's obviously a new generation that was on the scene in Ephesus. I think it's the children of the ones who had started the church were probably a large part of the church now. This is 40 years later. And again, this is a vulnerability for those who have all the head knowledge without a heart change. Oh, this is so concerning to me. If there was one concern, this would be the concern for me. If you could, could synopsis... My biggest concern, me as a pastor, it would be this one concern. This would be it. I don't want to raise a Pharisee. Right? I don't want to raise a child that can win every single Bible Jeopardy contest ever but doesn't love Jesus. And as a pastor, I don't want to lead a church that's like that either. So how do we know? If there's mixed motives, how do we know? I'll tell you the answer. What's your devotion life look like? That's your answer. Are you enjoying Christ? Are you delighting in his word? I know sometimes it's hard to read. I know sometimes it's hard to pray. But is he your first love? If not, guess what? Repentance is in order. We have hope. And his name is Jesus. He came to die for people like us. Praise the Lamb, right? Notice this exhortation. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, this is so beautiful here, folks. He has the call for repentance. And again, if we look at repentance wrong, we're going to see repentance as that one thing that's, oh, no, I've got to repent. That, you missed it. Do you understand? If you look at repentance that way, you've missed the whole point. The greatest joy that can be found for your soul is found in repentance. This is the most kind thing that Jesus could have said to them. This is, this is like love overflowing. Oh, turn back to me, church. Come back to me and enjoy me. Find your satisfaction in me. That's what he's telling them. For it is me that gives you the light that will then be the source to share everybody else the glory of me. And even in here, he's like, oh, I just want you to make sure that you understand something. This does not mean that I don't want you to stop sharing with the false teachers and exposing false teachers. Do you understand? He's not saying, look, repent and find your joy in me, and that means give up calling people out. He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, he makes sure in verse 6, yet this you do have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In other words, what's he saying? Keep doing it. Keep exposing it. But make sure your heart's right in it. Make sure that you love me first. 
Make sure it's about my glory, not your glory. Make sure you love the people that you're confronting. Make sure that you love me. Oh, isn't this good? So so don't fall over onto the other side. Okay, so I'm just going to be this guy that walks around singing Kumbaya all the time. I'm just going to walk around and, oh, this is so good. This is nice. Oh, God. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Yes, we can say that. But there's also, you're in sin. You're a false teacher. You need to repent and trust in Christ. Boy, that doesn't sound God is good all the time. No, sometimes God is wrathful. All the time. All the time. God is wrathful. <laughs> We're going to start that one? <laughs> Let's try it. <laughs> God is wrathful. You say all the time. All the time? God is wrathful. Amen. <laughs> but it's both. God is good. All the time. All the time. Right? Because we have a loving Savior. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I find it so interesting here. You say, why should we go through the rest of the six? This one was the most applicable to us. We should just stop here. Well, because it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's plural there. So it implies everybody's going to hear everybody's letter. <laughs> and we all need to be careful of being any of the seven. So check your heart. And find your joy in Christ Jesus. For he is your hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Forgiveness that's found in our, our Savior. Help us to rejoice and delight in Him. Help us to love you with all of our hearts and minds and souls. Oh, Father, when we are distracted by the things of the world and taken off of the path, keep our focus on you. May we love you and serve you and honor you as you deserve. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.